Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. You know what I'm wearing right now, Rain? It's my brand new ring from Enzo Rings. It's its new Star Wars collection. These are these high quality, 100% silicone rings made in the USA. They got R2-D2. They got C-3PO. They got Stormtrooper. I love me some Star Wars. I didn't even know this, but these silicone rings are all the rage these days. They're so comfortable. You can wear them while you're at the gym, while you're traveling, you can do your chores, you can wear them in the water, you can have them on while you're having sex as long as you're okay with it and your partner's cool with it. (laughs) Is that something you have to check out with your partner? Hey, is it okay if I wear my Enso ring? Is it the Mandalorian Enso ring? Then yes. So order Enso rings today for yourself and for the Star Wars fans in your life. Go to E-N-S-O rings.com and so rings and use code star wars for free shipping and so rings.com okay round two name something that's not boring a laundry oh a book club computer solitaire huh ah oh, sorry we were looking for chumba casino that's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchases, prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Welcome to Metaphysical Milkshake, the show where we go deep, we get weird, and we search for the meaning of life along the way. Presented by Cast Media and Soul Painting. Are there things that you are certain you're right about that if you really thought about it for more than a couple of minutes, you may think maybe you're wrong? I would love to say yes. Out of the uh, generosity of my heart, I would love to say yes, I am open minded <laughs> about that, but I'm really not. Like, just when it, when it, when you boil it right down, I feel like I've read a lot of books. I've studied a lot of belief systems, philosophies, religions. I read a lot about politics, sociology, psychology. Yeah, yeah. And I'm I'm pretty set in that. You earned your opinions. I feel like I've earned my opinion. Yeah. What about you? Do you have strong opinions? Uh <laughs> No, 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 no. I'm, I'm like, you know, I'm like a reed in the wind. I can go either way. Not only do I have very strong opinions, one funny thing about me, which my wife uh, generously pointed out to me, um, was, is that I will believe something to the death until it's proven wrong. And then I will believe the opposite of it until the death. So like, whatever the belief, like I'm open to changing my mind. I'm not sure. like one of these people who's like, I will not change my mind. It's just that, the second I do change my mind, I'm just as <laughs> stubborn and like full of myself about the new opinion as I was about the previous opinion. But isn't this kind of a a poison upon our land, a pox upon our house 
of America in 2021 that we are so opinionated and we are so certain and sure of our beliefs and our way of seeing the world and how the world works that we're not able to adapt and we are getting ever more stuck. Look, there's something to be said about this idea of examining not just you know, opinions or ideas or certain facts that you've been holding all along, but maybe even examining like values, you know, like core beliefs that you have. Should those things, which kind of define you as an individual, is that something that you should look at again? I mean, again, maybe you're wrong about it. Maybe you and I are both wrong. I mean, unlikely, unlikely to be sure. But possible. I I think we need a guide, Reza. I think we need a guide in this journey. I know a guy. Who's that? Adam Grant, obviously. uh, Just, uh, you know, world famous rock star, uh, uh, business psychologist. I guess he calls calls himself an organizational psychologist, which... um, I don't know what that means. Uh, Everybody knows who Adam Grant is. His first book, Give and Take, was a gigantic success. He wrote Originals, How Nonconformists Move the World. Also a bestseller. He wrote Option B with Sheryl Sandberg. That was a really, really good book. And now, now he's got this new book, which is precisely on this whole issue, right? It's called Think Again. And the whole point of it is maybe there are certain ideas, uh, opinions, even values that we have both as individuals and as collectives that uh, that it's important for us to question and to and to kind of see if we can poke holes in them. And also maybe uh, part of that involves rethinking the way that we assume other people form their values. Like how do we kind of correct people that we disagree with, right? It's this idea of like relearning and rethinking. Uh, And it's a fascinating book. It's sure to be another gigantic success. And I know this is going to come as a shock to you, Rain, but we got him. He's here. He's here? What? He's actually on the pod. I know you had no preparation for this whatsoever. You mean Adam Grant, whose TED Talks have been viewed more than 25 million times and hosts the chart-topping TED podcast, Work Life with Adam Grant, who got his BA from Harvard and PhD from the University of Michigan? How did you just happen to know all this stuff about our guest? Let's bring him on board. Adam Grant, come on down. Adam Grant, welcome to Metaphysical Milkshake. Thank you. I'm I'm excited to be here, although I don't think I've ever had metaphysics in a milkshake before. It, so, it actually sounds kind of gross. Gross? What are you talking about, gross? It, it tastes like chocolate chip cookies. It is as good for you as meatloaf. That's the problem. I hate chocolate. Adam, obviously, you are a, a best known as an amateur magician. Um... What else do you do? Is there is that it or he's best known sure as an amateur magician as a kid but also a world-class all-American diver as well. So What wait, I did not I've known yeah. you for like 6 7 years I didn't know <laughs> he that. He is a diver. Yeah. He does have like a he does have like that swimmer's head, right? <laughs> and Jason Statham, also a world-class diver was on the uh, UK Olympic team. Same head. 
Yeah, he's amazing. I've I've actually watched his 10-meter videos, and I used to want to be him when I grew up. You're almost there. So on the side, Adam, (laughs) you do a little bit of writing and a little academia and a little studying and a little teaching. And we'd love to hear about your world for those 27 listeners that don't know uh, too much about you. Of our 29. We have 29 total listeners, but 27 (laughs) of them probably have never heard of you. Tell us a little bit about who you are. It's such a metaphysical question. (laughs) Who am I? Who was I yesterday? Who might I be tomorrow? I don't know. This is the least metaphysical question. I mean, I, it's funny. I've been trying to rethink my identity. I think mm. if, if you had asked me years ago, I would have said, I'm a diver. I'm a magician. Uh, I think now I, I aspire to be a good person. And I think, I don't know, my definition of being a good person has evolved. For, for a while, it was pursuing excellence. Now it's being generous and trying to lead a life of integrity and be a curious learner and uh, try to give people freedom and opportunity. Uh, so I don't know. Is that is that too metaphysical? I love that. And I love that you're not defining yourself as, um, well, I'm a published author and I'm a professor at Wharton School of Business and I'm, I've won these awards. Um, and defining yourself by your excellence and your values and your core belief about yourself, I think that's that's fantastic. And I think that ties into uh, the book you wrote. And for those viewing on YouTube, I'm going to hold it up. For those listening on podcasts, I'm holding up the book Think Again by Adam Grant. Uh, the Power of Knowing What You Don't Know. Uh, what inspired you to write this book? I had so many struggles with rethinking things. Um, I remember in middle school, my best friend, uh, we were on the phone. It was a commercial during Seinfeld. And we got into an argument. I have no memory of what it was about. But he said, shut up, Adam. You're wrong. And I insisted I was right. And he hung up on me. And I tried to call him back. And he said, I won't talk to you until you admit you were wrong. And it was was something that I was very obviously wrong about. I think it was a movie quote. And he had gone back and watched the movie. And I was clearly wrong. And I couldn't admit it. And I've gone through that experience so many times in my life that eventually I said, okay, I have got to get better at rethinking the things that I think I know and also helping other people do that. Do that Because that's, that's sort of my job, right? My job is to think again. Uh, a lot of the time as an organizational psychologist, it's about how to make a job more meaningful and motivating or a team more creative or a culture more collaborative. But <laughs> sometimes I don't practice what I teach still. <laughs> and I decided that this book would be a great chance to turn research into research and figure out how I could become more open-minded and how I could help other people do that better too. Yeah, well, I'm excited to dig deeper into all the stuff that you talk about in the book. It's a lot of fascinating stories in there and a lot of lessons about how to kind of question some of our uh, basic assumptions and also how to, you know, approach other people who differ from you in, in, in ways that could, you know, possibly change their minds as well. But, you know, you tell the story about how you knew you were wrong, like rationally you knew you were wrong, but maybe emotionally you refused to admit that you were wrong. By the way, this is an experience I know nothing about. Um, <laughs> what is that about? What it, What is it about the human condition? I mean, you've done an enormous amount of work studying sort of human psychology what is it about us as individuals that make it so difficult for us to just simply say, mm, maybe I'm wrong? Well, I think I think the the psychological part, the emotional part is 
saying you're wrong, at least in Western culture, is saying you're dumb, right? You're, it's, it's calling your, your intelligence or your competence into question. And nobody wants to be unintelligent. So that's a risk. But then there's a social part of this too, which is if I admit I'm wrong, then not only are people going to think I'm stupid, they're also potentially going to exclude me from the group because they can't mm -hmm. trust me anymore or because I don't believe the things that they believe anymore. Um, and that's, that's terrifying, right? Evolutionarily, <laughs> exclusion is, is something that we had to monitor in order to survive. And I think a lot of social exclusion is not life-threatening anymore, but it still feels life-threatening. Uh, so I think, you know, between your ego and your belonging being on the line, that's a lot of pressure to face. Well, I'm glad you mentioned ego because there was a section in your book that I found fascinating about the reaction that we have emotionally deep down in our kind of reptilian brain, our amygdala. And uh, there's a fight and flight kind of response sometimes to threat. And that perceived threat then gets kicked up to kind of our our overarching ego. And you talk about that. So is that, is it, is it, isn't it part of it a kind of biological as well that to be right means to kind of shore up who we are because there is that perceived danger? Yeah, I think there's something there. I, I love this term in psychology, the totalitarian ego. And for me, it, it conjures up this image of a, a miniature dictator living in everyone's head. And its job is to keep out negative information about you the same way that Kim Jong-un controls the press in North Korea. And that dictator is vigilant about saying, look, anything that could be a threat to your intelligence, your attractiveness, your competence, I want to I shield you from that as much as possible because it hurts. There are even some neuroscientists who have shown that it's like being punched in the mind uh, when, when you're told you're wrong or when your beliefs are, your core beliefs are challenged. Um, and so what do you do? You put up mental armor. And what I think is so interesting about that armor is it protects you from pain in the short term, but it also prevents you from growth in the long term. You end up spending all this time trying to prove yourself instead of actually working to improve yourself. And I think we could use a little more improving in the world and a little bit less proving. So a lot of books like this are simply think pieces. One of the things I really appreciate about all of your writing and your talks and, and your work is how can we personally apply it to ourselves? This isn't just in the realm of academia. Uh, it has kind of personal, not just psychological, but personal improvement elements uh, kind of woven in. And one of the things that really struck home for me was a section you had at the beginning of the book where you talked about the three different modes that people like to get into, preacher mode, prosecutor mode, and politician mode. Can you talk a little bit about that? And then I want to say why I found that relevant. Credit to my colleague, Phil Tetlock, for putting that framework on the map. The basic idea is that we spend way too much time thinking like preachers, prosecutors, and politicians. So when you're in preacher mode, you believe you've already found the truth and your job is to proselytize it. When you're in prosecutor mode, you're trying to win an argument and prove your case. And when you're in politician mode, you're trying to win over an audience and doing a lot of lobbying and campaigning to get their approval. And my big worry was that preaching and prosecuting stop us from thinking again, because you've already decided that I'm right and everybody else is wrong, so you don't need to change your mind or reconsider any of your views. And in politician mode, you might be telling your audience what you think they want to hear, but you're probably not changing your views deep down, right? You're sticking to your tribe. And I, I, I find this super interesting as an organizational psychologist because I've never worked in any of those jobs, right? I'm, I'm not a preacher. I'm not, I'm not really religious. Uh, I didn't go to law school, no prosecuting experience, and I hate politics. And yet I catch myself slipping into these modes 
from time to time. And I think they really cloud my judgment and my thinking. Metaphysical milkshakers, listeners all, have you ever had one of those ideas that you just don't know how to get started on making it into a reality? Totally. Experts say that not knowing how or where to start is one of the biggest causes of procrastination. This is where the Blinkist app comes in. Blinkist takes top nonfiction books, pulls out the key takeaways, puts them into text and audio explainers called Blinks, Use Blinks to learn about how to tackle procrastination or to get started on developing a business idea or to just take your projects one step further. The great thing about it is that Blinkist has like thousands of titles in like 27 categories, all ready to learn. A lot of stuff on race, which is great. There's Mm -hmm. been, you know, a renewed interest in conversations about it. Why I'm no longer talking to white people about race, uh, how to be an anti-racist, white Mm -hmm. fragility. Skin in the game. That's a good one. I don't know if you've read uh, From Black Lives Matter to Black Liberation. It's a good one. Right now, folks, Blinkist has a special offer just for our audience. Go to Blinkist.com slash milkshake to start your free seven-day trial and get 25% off a Blinkist premium membership. That's Blinkist spelled B-L-I-N-K-I-S-T, Blinkist.com slash milkshake, 25% off and a seven-day free trial, Blinkist.com slash what? Milkshake. Milkshake it is. You know, these days, many small business owners are busier than ever. Of course they are, because they're focused on managing and growing their businesses, so they can't always spend the time they wish they could on recruiting, and that's why LinkedIn Jobs has made it easier to find and hire the best candidates for free. Rain, you've hired people. I've hired people. And let me tell you, you want to definitely do background checks on these people and you want the right kind of recommendations, the right kind of resume. Super important who you hire, and that's why LinkedIn can help. You can get started by posting your job for free, and you can reach LinkedIn's gigantic network, 740 million professionals. Everybody's on LinkedIn, Reza. You can fill out targeted screening questions so you can get your role in front of the most qualified candidates with the experience, skills, and motivation you need. And then you just use these simple tools to filter and prioritize the top candidates you'd like to interview. So LinkedIn Jobs will help you hire the right person for your role, and your first job post is free. Just visit linkedin.com slash milkshake. Again, that's linkedin.com slash milkshake in order to do what? To post your first job for free. Terms and conditions apply. And, you know, you and I have had a number of conversations along these lines, so you probably already know that I had some problems with your book, which is that... Yeah, look, I mean, it's important to rethink certain assumptions and hypotheses and theories that you have. But it seems as though you're suggesting that values and mores are also things that require rethinking. It's one thing to be like, uh, maybe there is life underneath the ice on the frozen moon of Europa, and I'm going to hypo- hypothesize that and see if I can prove it and be open to the fact that it may not be provable. It's another thing to be like, all human beings are created equal regardless of the color of their skin or their, you know, the, the, who they happen to love or how they define their gender. And disagreeing with that is not just an alternative idea or an opposing opinion. It's fucking wrong. There's nothing right about it. So I guess that's that's where I kind of get caught a little bit. You say you say in there, 
you don't have to believe everything you think. And I think I understand what that means, but I want to I want to be clearer. But then later on, you say who you are should be a question of what you value, not what you believe. So I I, I need I need some help kind of reconciling those two <laughs> points and figuring out at what point can I simply say, no, I don't need to rethink certain of my assumptions. Reza, I just want to say. You're in prosecutor mode, bro, and I love it. I was going to say the same thing. Also, can I get an amen? Reza, in prosecutor mode. You're really at your finest in that mode. No, I, I actually think this this is something I really struggled with in the book on two levels. One is, I think sometimes that when you're thinking like a scientist, you sound like a prosecutor because you're trying to subject somebody else's unscientific thinking to critical scrutiny. And I, th I think we need more of that in the world. And that's that's why I am proud that my biggest vice of preaching, prosecuting, and politicking is also prosecuting. Uh, <laughs> when, when I hear an idea that I think is wrong, I just feel like it's my moral responsibility to correct it with sharper logic and stronger evidence. And so I'm, I'm very glad to be the target of that, maybe even the victim of it. Uh, so Reza, I, to the, the substance of your critique, this is really something I struggled with in the book. I wanted to build a hierarchy of things that we should be quicker to abandon and and much um, much more consistent around. Um, and I didn't end up doing it, and I regret it. So I would have started by saying, okay, opinions and assumptions and intuitions should be at the very bottom in terms of we should be as flexible as possible with those, right? Those are all just hypotheses. And then as we move to core beliefs, we should be a little bit a little bit less willing to just let them go mm. tomorrow. Uh, although I also think it's it gets more dangerous to hang on to, to false beliefs, right? And so I, I don't want people to be inflexible there. And then at the very top, I would have put values and principles and said, okay, you shouldn't abandon some of your core principles. I don't want to go down like a, a too long of a rabbit hole. And Rain and I have yes, these, you do. these arguments yes, you do. all the you time. You want to I kind of do, yeah. It's just, it is true that some values are better than others. That's just true. Wait, wait, hold on. Says who and for what outcomes? So, so th again, this this is the difference between a psychologist and a sociologist, right? Which is that to me, it's all about, it's not about the individual. It's about the betterment of society and civilization. And there are certain rules to the game of society and civilization. One of the foundational rules is that we all are equal. We are. We all have equal access. We're all. Um, equally human. And so if you violate that rule, in other words, if your core value is the dehumanization of another because of the color of their skin or who they worship or who they love, then you're not, you're not, you don't get to play the game. But wait a minute, Reza, you, the core values of humanity up until about 1962 and Martin Luther King, the core values of humanity was complete and blatant inequality. True. Uh, and that's the foundation of civilization, not just Western civilization. All of civilization had slaves and denigrated women. And uh, so how can you say, like, these are the core values that if you don't play by these rules, you can't even play the game. That's how we got here. Okay, so who, if, between, um, uh, you know, uh, George Wallace and... Martin Luther King, who was right. One of them was wrong. And it's not an issue of like, well, I think both of them should have really looked deep down inside and, and questioned their fundamental assumptions about humanity. There are some things 
that are just wrong. There are opinions that are just plain wrong. Science deniers, fake news uh, spreaders, conspiracy theorists. So I think that that it's worth asking someone like Adam, um, what is what actually is the value? What is the the point of trying to sort of reach out to to people who hold uh, views that are just plain wrong and trying to you know change their minds right when they don't even accept the rules of the game? Let me respond to two pieces of that. The first one is. I think there's a difference between factually wrong and morally wrong. But I could actually say we could think like a a scientist about both, right? So you say, all right, there's some rules that are going to lead to a better society, right? Whether we're talking about a democratic society or a peaceful civilization, right? We We could think about what exactly a good society means. And we should probably look to actual philosophers to help us do that, right? Because this is what they do for a living. And then once we agree on, on what social good looks like, we can start to measure that. And we can say, look, we could, we could gather data. We can run the experiments. We can track longitudinally what happens when these moral principles are adopted. And I, I, you know, I've spent my career doing a version of this at a much lower level of analysis, which is studying individuals and groups and finding that it's possible to align what you and I would consider to be virtues, right? Moral values, um, like generosity and humility with achieving success uh, when, you know, when you think about a performance goal. And I don't think it, it would be difficult to do the same thing, right, at, at, a, at a larger scale. And I know there, there are multiple fields that have tried to do this. So I, I, I just love the idea that we can use evidence to support the moral argument. And say, actually, there's there's a scientific case to uh, to follow these moral principles because if you value peace, if you value prosperity, if you value opportunity and freedom for everyone, then you know there, there's data. There are data that would tell us that's a that's a good way to go. Now, uh, to the 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 question of of should I try to open the minds of people who don't even buy into you know the the standards of fact and evidence? I, I guess what I want to know is what's the alternative. Letting them continue to believe in conspiracy theories and continue to peddle fake news and continue to foment insurrections. That sounds like a much worse outcome to me than than trying to engage those people and open their minds. I've brought up this example a long time ago on an earlier podcast we did, but I I was really struck by this article. It was in the New York Times, and it was uh, when Trump was running for office and talking about build the wall and talking about uh, dangerous immigrants coming over and gangs and spreading disease and their murders and rapists coming over. And they interviewed some people in mid-America about this who agreed with that. And then they started showing them pictures of... um, Latinx families that were coming over or had come over. And here's this girl and her name is Lupe and she went to college and she's got a job and she's participating and she's so happy to be an American. They're like, oh, well, she should be able to stay. And like, and here's, you know, Gustavo and he came over and he got a job and he put his children into school and he's now working as a successful automobile mechanic. Oh, he should be able to come. Like when the stories got personal, when they saw pictures and they saw faces their hearts kind of opened and melted in a way. So is there a, is there, we've been speaking very intellectually about this stuff and talking about being Mm -hmm. scientists, which for me is like, you should be more like Spock, but isn't there, (laughs) why can't we think more like a Tibetan monk? Why can't we think more like a poet or think more like a a great therapist uh, in, in, in connecting with people, in changing our minds and, and allowing other people's minds to change? I think that's a brilliant question. 
I think, I think we need more of all of those professions in our heads. And, you know, it reminds me, it reminds me, sorry, I have to go to the data because that's what I do as a social scientist. But uh, there's a meta-analysis, a study of studies looking at intergroup contact interventions where you actually come face to face with somebody who belongs to the group that you're prejudiced against. And, you know, it sounds like one of those too good to be true ideas that if only we could sit down face to face and talk to each other, we would all get along. And yet over 700 studies in 94% of the cases, intergroup contact reduces prejudice. Wow. And one of, one of the most extraordinary demonstrations was just published last year from the Seeds of Peace camp that takes teenagers uh, mm -hmm. from Israel and Palestine and has them come, come together at summer camp. And it turns out that if you just happen to be assigned to a bunk with somebody from the other country, that you're, I think, roughly in the data 11 times more likely to develop a close friendship with them afterward. And that if you happen to be in a discussion group with somebody from your rival country, I think you were 15 times more likely then to develop a real lasting friendship with somebody, uh, you know, who you thought was your enemy. And it really, it really just reinforces that when, when you spend time interacting with someone, when you hear their story, uh, when you're able to empathize with them, all of a sudden you realize there is more to a person than a belief they hold or a group that they belong to. Yeah, absolutely. So one uh, question that I have, which I, I don't think was really covered in your book, because it was all about sort of individuals and changing one's own minds, changing other people's minds, things like that. I wonder, is there like a, a collective belief that we have about America that you think um, needs to be rethought? So many. I have, I mean, <laughs> I have mine. I have one that I, that I have, but I want to hear What's yours. What's yours? Mine? Uh well, if I, I mean, if I say it, they might kick me out. So why don't you say yours first, and then I'll say mine. There's a long list for me. I think one of the most basic ones is that America is a land of opportunity, that mm. we live in a meritocracy, which is just a joke. Just absolute bullshit. I, I want to say it couldn't be less true, except to know that there are countries where it's less true. Mine is kind of like that. Mine is the, the whole theory of American exceptionalism which is, you know, something that I was fed and that I used to even regurgitate all the time. Uh, this idea that there's something exceptional about this country, that there's no other country in the world like it, that we are the greatest country in the world, which, you know, to your point, Adam, of like actually thinking like a scientist is like objectively, demonstrably false. I mean, there's like, <laughs> as far as I know, not a single rubric in which we are uh, number one, except for, I think, military spending and also um, the economic disparity. I think that those are our two <laughs> biggest, those, that's where we're number one. But it's just like such, this, such a foundational idea that even now, I still find myself having to kind of correct it when the thought occurs to me. There are, there are multiple cases to be made that we are the most individualistic country on earth, right? And I, I got curious about how we got that way. And one of, one of the most interesting arguments I've read is if you look at who was willing to get in a boat and sail to just complete uncertainty, it was a bunch of extroverted, narcissistic, individualistic people who had the audacity to believe I'm going to make it and we can make a new country. Uh, and, uh, you know, a lot of people just weren't up for the voyage. Mm -hmm. And, you know, then you could raise a question about, OK, did that, you know, did that give us a certain genetic density or a certain, you know, set of, of cultural pressures that tipped us in that direction? Whatever happened now that we're here, 
I think that it's a false dichotomy to separate individualism from, uh, from community. I think that in some ways, America has always been a community-oriented place. Uh, de Tocqueville, when he came here, right, marveled at how philanthropic we were, how much we volunteered. We still, I think, are the, this is another maybe rare dimension of American exceptionalism, right? If you look at our rates of financial giving yeah. and volunteering time, uh, we are pretty much in a league of yeah, our we're own. We're far and away the most charitable country in the world. And when there's national disa international disasters, it's always the United States, and not just because of our wealth. It's like per capita, even people making under $60,000 a year, giving larger percentages of their income towards philanthropy. Yeah, and then we could we could debate about why that is too, and, and say, well, you know, we we also see that the conservatives are more philanthropic than you know than liberals are, um, and Arthur Brooks has shown that's in part because liberals sort of believe it's the government's responsibility, uh, and conservatives take it upon themselves more often. But wh wherever that comes from, I think we could recognize that you can be individualistic and community oriented at the same time, right? It's possible mm -hmm. to fit in and stand out. Um, there's a term for that in social psychology. It's called optimal distinctiveness. And it is the sense that that you both uh, have status and you also have belonging. And I think this is where we run into trouble. That um, there's a social psychologist, Marilyn Brewer, who's shown that we seek out optimal distinctiveness by affiliating and identifying with, with unusual groups. And that way we belong to something, but it's really different from anything else that exists. Uh, and I think that's where our tribalism gets us in trouble. So I don't know. <laughs> I think that this is a hard problem to solve. I think that uh, probably some superordinate identity is helpful, right? Trying to lift us up to thinking about what are the quintessentially American values, uh, like freedom from oppression, uh, like opportunity for all. Uh, I think that could be a starting point. Uh, I think, you know, recognizing that you can... You can have status as an individual, and that doesn't mean you can't also be reliant on your community or on your family would be a big help, right? To, to rebrand help-seeking as a source of strength, not a sign of weakness, might do us some good. I don't know. What do, what do you both think? I think you nailed it, and I think you brought up uh, some incredibly valuable and salient points, and I love that. I, here's a way in which my mind was changed, Adam. I didn't think about individualism versus community in a terms of a false dichotomy. And you're right, it is a false dichotomy. One can be extremely yes. individualistic. One can be in a community of extreme individuals. Um, and we can learn how to do that. We can learn how to live free or die and make sure that our community is living free or dying. Wait, that didn't really come out right. But you know what, I, you know what I'm saying? So that... I was, I allowed my mind to be changed by this conversation. Thank you, Adam. Well, there you go. There you, you forced Rain to think again. I, I hope I invited him, not forced. Rain, uh, you're, you're a CBD fan, right? CBD can be very helpful. It's not about what you feel. It's about what you don't feel oh, when you're good on way of CBD. Yeah, you don't yeah. feel stress. You don't feel anxiety. You don't feel pain. Sometimes I have trouble sleeping, and I took some couple hours before bed, and man, I just got chill in a really cool way, and I was able to sleep really deeply. It actually helped. It's a premium CBD. It helps keep your head clear, and it helps you feel your best. It's hassle-free. It's delivered directly to your door. You know, CBD not only helps you sleep, like you just said, but it reduces stress, it reduces anxiety and pain, 
and no hangover, no addiction. So place a few drops of feels under your tongue and feel the difference within minutes. Joining the Feels monthly membership makes your self-care easy. You'll save money on every order and you can pause or cancel at any time. So start feeling better with Feels. Become a member today by going to feels.com slash milkshake and you'll get 50% off your first order with free shipping. That's F-E-A-L-S dot com slash milkshake to become a member and get 50% automatically taken off your first order with free shipping. Feels.com slash milkshake. Brian, what was the last time that you had cereal? I mean, honest to goodness, like cereal in a box. I got to be honest with you. Sometimes when I'm eating my emotions, I go straight for the box of my son's <laughs> cereal. This is the thing is like you get Magic Spoon and you don't have to feel bad about eating kids cereal anymore because we're all trying to eat better. We're plugging a lot of stuff on the show, but legit you, Reza, you love the Magic Spoon. I'm not going to lie here. I love Magic Spoon. We got four boxes of cereal uh, in the mail, it lasted, I don't know, 24 hours, maybe. We all sat around <laughs> as a giant family and just like scarfed it down. Magic Spoon's got zero grams of sugar, 13 to 14 grams of protein, only four net grams of carbs in each serving. That's incredible. You go to magicspoon.com slash milkshake to grab a variety pack, and then you can try it today. And be sure to use our promo code MILKSHAKE. You save five bucks off your order. And Magic Spoon is so confident in their product, it's back with a 100% happiness guarantee. So if you're some kind of weirdo who doesn't <laughs> like cereal, then don't worry. You can return it for any reason. They'll refund your money, no questions asked. Remember, get your next delicious bowl of guilt-free cereal at magicspoon.com slash milkshake. Use that code, folks, milkshake, to save $5 off. Thank you, Magic Spoon, for sponsoring this episode. And please send my family more cereal. Send us more Magic Spoon. Now we are going to prosecute you with what we call our lightning round. Please give us the first answer that comes on the tip of your tongue. Speak from your heart. Speak from your gut. What recharges your soul? Being inspired by brilliant, motivated students. When do you feel most connected with the universe? When I'm completely absorbed in reading a book and I forget that the story I'm reading is not real. What's the silliest fear you have? I'm afraid that somebody is going to plant an M&M in my bag of Skittles. I hate chocolate that much. <laughs> wow. It happened to me once, and I, I now have PTSD around it, apparently. When do you truly feel like yourself? When I'm writing, when I'm reading, uh, when I'm obsessed with pursuing a goal, and when I'm talking to somebody who I respect and care about. What's one eye-opening experience every person should have? Standing in a red circle and giving a TED Talk. How do you think you will die? I hope I won't. Well, you want to live forever. Definitely. Just a brain in a jar. I mean, I, I'm hoping we have better technology by then, but better, it's better than not being alive, I think. That's just ridiculous. I'm sorry. <laughs> but I'm going to let it go. I don't find it ridiculous at all. I think the alternatives are ridiculous. I mean, existing is better than not existing. Full stop. Well, you're, you're assuming that with death comes non-existence. So that's a very big assumption. That's a different episode. <laughs> it is. And I'm, I'm just saying I have a lot of questions that science can't help me answer there. And so I prefer the, the certain existence over the uncertainty around non-existence. What book has had the biggest impact on your life and why? One of the ones that, that was pivotal was Tuesdays with Maury. 
Uh, I, re- I read that book and I realized that the people who'd had the biggest impact on my life were my teachers. And suddenly I wanted to pay that forward. Besides your irrational fear of M&Ms, what's one thing that people don't know about you? I once took a bus from Boston to Mexico City and back. Just for fun. I had no exams my senior uh, January. All my friends were studying for four weeks and I had just enough money to afford a bus ticket. And it was, I think, 58 hours to, to get to Monterrey maybe. And then, I don't know, I spent a couple hundred hours traveling around by bus and then back. I will never do that again. <laughs> That's fantastic. We know you're a magician. We know that you're an expert diver and you're okay at writing books and teaching classes. But what's one skill you wish you had? Comedy. What is your life's big question? How can we help people care more about building character than pursuing happiness? That's beautiful. Adam Grant, this has just been a sincere and profound pleasure. And uh, I got so much out of reading your book. And I'm wanting to know how you got M. Night Shyamalan to quote your book. It's Shyamalan? Shyamalan. Thank you. Um, I asked him. I texted Knight and he responded and said he would be happy to well, do it. Well, the, uh, the blurb, people should know, you can't see the book here. The blurb says, it turns out Adam was dead the whole the time. The whole time! <laughs> the whole time. Shh, don't spoil it. <laughs> Spoiler alert. Adam Grant, you're a great thinker, a great teacher, a great writer, a great friend. It's, it was wonderful to talk to you. Thank you so much for coming on the pod. This was a ton of fun. I could definitely do it all day. I can't wait to turn the tables. (laughs) Anytime. Anytime. Adam is always so fascinating, isn't he? He's such a nice guy, too. He is so nice, and he has such an encyclopedic knowledge of statistics and studies. He can just conjure up anything. You know, what's one skill I wish I had? I wish I had that skill. That's that's pretty amazing. (laughs) And also, you know, I, he really he really did kind of change your mind there at the end. Like that was, you know, the whole like individualism versus communalism, which I also have to say, like it's, it's, a, it's kind of a belief that I have. It's something I've written about a lot about Western society being more individualistic and say, Eastern society being more communal. But like he, uh, he kind of challenged that, that uh, dichotomy for you, didn't he? Yeah, he did. And uh, it really was a light bulb moment because I have been vigorously and vehemently arguing uh, that we're too individualistic and we've got to mm-hmm. be uh, more communalistic, community-oriented, more, uh, you know, collaborative. And to see that, wait a second, those two forces are not necessarily in opposition. It's not one or the other. It is possible to have both kind of wedded in a unique American identity. And uh, uh, that's, that. It stopped me in my tracks, quite honestly. And hmm. it's it's something really worth looking at and pondering some more. And um, and it might even be a way of helping kind of bridge this great divide we have in our country is to say, hey, guys, it's not just individualism and liberty, and it's not just collectivism and equaling socialism, big air quotes there, but... Um, how can we merge the two and find a, a union of of those two forces? Yeah, I was thinking like, is there a, a belief that I hold right now? Yeah, that I have that I am confident in its truth or validity. That you know, going by Adam's point, 
I'd be willing to rethink, re-examine, think that I may possibly be wrong about. Anything come to mind? Um, if you don't uh, have one, I've got one for you. <laughs> I, tell me what I should re-examine about my beliefs. Tell me. I'm going to prosecute you. All right, prosecute um, away. So you have a, a belief that comes up sometimes. Like you're a very big-hearted person and a devoted family man and incredibly compassionate to all people on earth. But you have a, uh, a, a certain set of beliefs around kind of coalition building between mm -hmm. the uh, political right and political left in the United States that you think is just yeah. poppycock and nonsense, that we should not yeah. Yeah. be reaching True. hands across the aisle, building coalitions, coming together, finding common ground, that, uh, that we should, um, I don't know. Uh, yeah. No, that the right is a cancer uh, and that it needs to be excised from the body politic before it metastasizes and spreads and kills us all. <laughs> there you have it, America. So is that a belief <laughs> that you would be willing to look at a little bit? Yeah, you know, this is a really fascinating question because a few years ago, five, five six years ago, I was definitely a, you know, reach across the aisle person. So in a way, my mind was changed from that that it's worth reaching across the aisle. And then I discovered that a good half of this country um, hates me and my children um, and, you know, openly supports, you know, uh, xenophobia and uh, racism and, you know, and all, and all of that stuff. And that really, I think that, that was such an eye-opening experience for me that I was like, huh, yeah, you know what? Fuck those guys. Um, so I feel like I could, you know, given some time and and some thought and some sort of general progress in American society, I could definitely go back to the way that I used to think. I could, I yeah, yeah. I'm going to get you there. I'm going to coax you there. And metaphysical milkshake can be the olive branch. You know, as a matter of fact, we got uh, a really interesting voicemail. Uh, about this question, what if I'm wrong, from one of our listeners uh, named Nicolette. Let's listen to that voicemail real quick. I think it's really hard to change your mind because the mind um, is something that I think we use to, what we consider is to protect ourselves. So if you have the answers, if you know what you think and feel about everything, then you know you don't have to wonder and you don't have to question and it's sort of this little cocoon that you feel safe in, which is not a cocoon that you should be safe in. So I like to say I suspend my disbeliefs so then I don't have to change my mind because I don't disbelieve anything. I love that phrase, suspend your disbeliefs. I think there's there's really something there. And, I, you know, I like that concept, too, uh, which is kind of essentially I feel like what she's saying is a made up mind is an offensive defense mechanism. Yeah, and she's right that there is something safe and secure about having, you know, like these solid beliefs that you hold on to for dear life, whether they're right or not, doesn't mm -hmm. really matter, right? Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, interestingly enough, uh, we were so intrigued by this particular uh, voicemail that um, we hired a private investigator, uh, 
cast media, of course, paid for all of that uh, to track her down. And we found her and we actually have her here to talk to us. Nicolette, are you there? Hi, Nicolette. Yeah. Hey, glad to be here. Thanks for, for calling in that terrific uh, answer to our metaphysical life's big question there. Now, uh, am, I, am I wrong here? Are you guys related somehow? We're Rain, related. Nicolette? Nicolette is my mother. Oh my Hi, mom. god. No. Wayne, don't don't put me that old, please. <laughs> now, but there is a connection. You you knew some of my family, is that right? I used to go to children's classes at your stepmother Christie's uh parents' house. Oh, the Doug Harris's. and Betty. Yeah, Doug and Betty Harris in Seattle. And did you learn anything at those children's classes? I did. I learned more than I've ever learned in my whole life. Wow. Wayne, wow. Because I think I learned from an emotional place. Versus an intellectual place. You know, the mind protects us. As a child, you're you're open to, you know, you don't, you're open with your heart. Right. Mm-hmm. There you go. Mm-hmm. And, that, mm-hmm. and that is a good analogy to, to kind of look at the child mind versus, and in Buddhism, they call it like the beginner's mind versus kind of the made up mind, the set mind, the kind of like set in its tracks mind. But so do you do you feel like you have an open mind? Like, can your mind be changed? Yes, my mind is open to be changed. My heart, probably not. Hmm. How do you how do you tell the difference between the two is what I'm curious about. Because hmm. I don't know if I can tell the difference really between my mind and my heart. Can I tell a story? Tell a story. We love stories around okay. here. Okay. I was engaged once and uh, he was uh, a Vietnam vet and he had some problems with uh Vietnam and PTSD. So we went to a counselor and the counselor asked us both if we wanted to work on the relationship. And I was, by that time, I was really kind of tired and I was just like, eh, you know, had it, tried all, read about PTSD, did everything. But so I really wanted to give him a real, honest, heartfelt answer. So I could feel my mind said no, but my heart and my gut felt yes. And that was probably the first time I've ever felt the delineation between my mind, my heart, my gut. There's something about what you're saying, Nicolette, that is so fascinating, which is that this idea that part of the reason why we have such a hard time admitting when we're wrong or being open to changing our mind about something is that there's a lot of like comfort and security and safety and well-being in the idea of certainty, right? That we hold these notions in our in our mind and, and we we find sustenance in them, we find comfort in them. And then somebody shows up and when they tell you that you you may be wrong about it, we don't we don't hear it as, oh, this aspect of your thought process on this particular topic or this particular subject may not be well thought out. There may be another way of looking at it. What we hear is that uh, you're not safe anymore. You're not secure anymore. You're not comfortable anymore. It's, it feels like an attack, you know? I like your idea that just uh, never have anything that's you know, fully certain in your mind, and then that'll never actually happen. But I like the way that Nicolette brought up the mind-heart connection. I don't want to say dichotomy, connection, because for me, sometimes 
my mind can get made up pretty quickly and I'll, I'll read a news article and I'll kind of like, oh, this, that's bullshit. And this is how it is. And this is how it should be. And I turn into a kind of a grumpy old white man. And then, and then if I interact with the story in a way that touches my heart, it kind of thaws my mind. And I'm like, oh, you know, it's like through compassion, you know, the veils can kind of drop and I can say, you know, maybe I should reconsider that. Like a softer heart leads to a softer mind. So your heart can change your mind. I like that. What do you think, Nicolette? Well, Rain, you know that as an actor, you're never supposed to play a character bad. You're supposed to find the motivation for why they do sure. what they do. So if you if you can do that in your own, if people can do that in their own personal lives, if they can understand where motivations come from, I think that then will also um, help them be more compassionate. Yeah. So increasing compassion. That's definitely the only problem with that analogy, Nicolette, is I'm not really a very good actor. I'm just like, mm. how can I play this big weird <laughs> character? You know, maybe I'll make give myself a funny haircut. Boom. That's kind of how I work. So, you know, you're not talking to Matt Damon here. Okay. (laughs) Well, Nicolette, this has been an excellent way to uh, close this topic. Thank you so much uh, for talking to us. It was a sincere pleasure. I'll say hi to Kristen, uh, my stepmom from you, and uh, wishing you much love. Thanks for joining the show, Nicolette. You too. Thank you. Thank you. Follow us, Metaphysical Milkshake, on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or wherever you happen to get your fine podcasts. Yeah, and if you want more of life's uh, big questions, you can find us on our socials at Reza Aslan, at Rain Wilson, and of course, at Metaphysical Milkshake. And on Twitter, we're at Meta Milk Podcast. Let us know your life's big questions, the things that are going through your mind, maybe topics that you would like us to cover. We just might do that. Hit hashtag metaphysical and please review us on these sites. That would really help grow our listenership and we would appreciate it so, so much. That's right. Either on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. And of course, you can also subscribe to the Metaphysical Milkshake YouTube channel and watch full episodes every week. You can watch our faces move while we have these conversations. Some of our faces move more than others, but you know, yes. I don't even know what that means. Thanks for listening, folks. Think again. See you next week. Metaphysical Milkshake is executive produced by Rain Wilson, Reza Aslan, and Colin Thompson. It's produced by Safa Samizadeh Yazd, Harris Lane, Mick Demaria, Hashem Self, and DJ Lubel. Cast Media is the production and distribution partner. It is edited by Tyler Newbold and audio mixed by Justin Kyle. Original music is composed by Jeff Tang. Maybe it's opinions, right? That might have made sense in 1995, but the same way that you laugh at somebody who is still using Windows 95 on their computer, maybe we should laugh at our, our old selves that held 1995 views. He's talking about you, Wayne. Oh, I mean, I don't know. Am I? <laughs> uh, maybe a little bit. Yeah, I mean, I, I still think grunge is the best music ever created, so... <laughs> I mean, you should see his collection of flannel shirts. It's... It's really... It's obscene. <laughs>